Under what circumstances is a person required to toivel, to immerse their kalim, their vessels in a mikveh, before they use them for food production? This week's parasha teaches us about kashering vessels. The Ramban has a question about that, which is going to lead us to the conversation around immersing vessels before we use them. In our parasha, which talks about the fact that the Jews are told that all of the vessels they take after winning the war against Midian, food production vessels, have to be kashered. Mr. Ramban has a very interesting question. Why is it that only now, after the battle against Midian, do we learn about how you go about kashering implements or vessels that you've taken from non-Jewish people? When it could have been already told to us prior to this, when they won the battles against Sichon and Oig. Surely then the Jews also took spoils of war. And surely there was kitchenware in those spoils, so they had to know how to kasher them then. Why not mention it earlier? That's the Ramban's question. To which he answers, that there's a big difference between the land, the geography of Sichon and Oig's kingdoms versus that of Midian. Because he says, Because conquering Sichon and Oig's land was part of what the Jews were permitted, not only in a military conquest, but to actually take the land for themselves. And then the Torah creates certain allowances that they were uh, permitted to participate in things which are under ordinary circumstances are forbidden. Like the Gemara in Chulin tells us that they were even allowed to eat if they came across steaks from Chaza, they were allowed to eat it. Whereas the land of Midian was never given to the Jewish people as part of their inheritance. Therefore, they couldn't take the land. They were only given the rights to exact vengeance against the Midianim for having tried to entrap the Jewish people through promiscuity and therefore the plague that follows. And therefore, it's only now, says the Ramban, that the prohibition against using the kitchenware emerges. It wasn't relevant at the time of Sichon and Oig. That's how the Ramban expresses it, right? It's an issue, it's an halachic issue that's only arrived on the scene now. And on that, the commentaries have an interesting question. Because in our parasha, not only are we taught about how you kasha vessels that you get from a non-Jewish person, we also learn the mitzvah to immerse new vessels that were produced by non-Jewish people or used vessels, that have been kashered in a mikveh. Kafisha hebi Rashi kan, as you'll see Rashi say in our in our parasha. In fact, the Ramban goes into great detail about it here in our parasha as well. Vim Kain, therefore the Mefroshim asked to the Ramban, just as you have asked, how come it is that we don't hear the, the mitzvah of kashering Kalim prior to the story of the Midianite war? Why don't we hear about immersing vessels earlier in the story? Right? When they won the wars against Sichon and Oig, there we should have been told, and you have to immerse vessels that come from non-Jewish people. And we can't use the same answer that the Ramban used about why kashering vessels wasn't mentioned earlier. What answer was it? Well, look, they were already allowed to eat non-kosher meat, and therefore, naturally, they were not required to actually kasher vessels. 
Because the logic of why we immerse kalim that have been produced by a non-Jewish person in a mikveh has nothing to do with the fear that perhaps there's some trafe content that's been absorbed into those vessels. Because they could be brand new vessels that you buy from the, sh- the shop, and it happens to be that the shop is owned by a non-Jewish person, or the factory that produced it was non-Jewish people, you still have to immerse it. The reason we immerse new vessels from an Anjou is, as the Talmud Yerushalmi tells us, because they're now leaving the dominion of the impurity of the non-Jewish world. And they're being upgraded into the holiness of the Jewish world. Just to symbolize that holiness, we put them through a mikveh. So therefore, why Taka did they not get an instruction at the time of the battle against Sichon and Oik to immerse all the Kalim that they may have taken from them? Now, you'll say, uh, the Ramban dealt with this. Look, close by, what does he say? He says, I actually have a thought that's kind of knocking around in my heart to say, that putting vessels into a mikveh before you use them is actually a rabbinic law. And the pasuk that tells us about immersing kalim is not to teach us that it's daraisa, it's to lend credibility to the fact that when the rabbanan enact a law to immerse kalim, we have a basis in the Torah. Ah, so maybe that's his answer. It's rabbinic, so obviously the Torah is not going to tell us outright about it. That still would not be a sufficient answer for two reasons. Aleph. The Ramban in that conversation ends off with a question mark. This requires further further exploration. Which means even the Ramban leaves it unclear. And perhaps it is possible that Tzfilas Kalem is a Torah law. Secondly, let's say the Pasuk is just there to lend credence to what the rabbis would enact generations down the line. And you could still ask the same logical question. Why is the Pasuk that we would then use to support the notion of Tfilas Kalim from the law of, uh, from the story of the conquest of Midian? And why is it not? from an earlier incident where we could have brought a Pasuk to support the idea of Tefillah's Kalim. And why is it the Ramban doesn't even ask any of these questions or raise any of these issues? He just says, okay, there's an issue that's kind of unresolved. So we need to understand what is the concept of immersing Kalim and why does it not enter into the same conversation as all our questions around where you learn to kasher Kalim? Let's try and answer. Perhaps we could explain as follows. We know that all of the mitzvahs were given to the Jewish people and they went into immediate effect at the time of the giving of the Torah. Now, some of those mitzvahs were only told to the people later on. Some of the mitzvahs were actually only revealed to the community in the last year they were in the desert. Take, for example, the laws of inheritance. Like we learned in last week's parasha, that that was introduced to the community much later on in the history of them being in the desert through the story of the five daughters of Slavchad who demanded to have rights to the land of Israel. Avoid and others like that as well. 
So therefore, maybe, umemela, ain't komokim laakshois, there's actually no basis for any chronological question about when halachas were introduced. You actually have no basis for the question, why were we not told about immersing kalim in the wars of Sichon and Oig? Because you could say that even though the mitzvah was live from when the Torah was given, it was only due to be taught to the people at the time of the war against Midian, which fits into a broader perspective, which is once a Torah, once the Torah was given, in other words, once the information was taught to the Jewish people, that's when it comes into effect. You'll say, hang on a second, but the Ramban did ask exactly that question. Why were we not taught the laws of kashering vessels earlier? That implies that there is an expectation it should have been taught earlier. Well, there's logic for that. Why do you have to kasher vessels? Because they were used for non-kosher. That means that non-kosher product, or more importantly for the halachas of, of kashers, the taste has been absorbed into the vessels. So what happens? Something impure or, or forbidden to eat is now absorbed into the vessel, which now makes the vessel unusable for a Jewish person. That is something we know, we have evidence that the Torah already brought to our attention earlier, prior to the war against Midian. Where do we see that? All the way back in Parashat Tzav. We were taught. If somebody boiled or cooked something which was non-kosher in a, an earthenware vessel, there's no hope for it. You have to smash it. Whereas if the treif was cooked inside a copper vessel, then clean it very well with water, and that would do the, in other words, kasher it. As Rashi says, why do you have to break the earthenware vessels? Because what's happened over here? You have the what's been absorbed into these vessels is from a carbon, which is now past the expiry date. Now it's strafe, it's non-kosher, under the category called noiser. Things which are beyond their expiry date. You have a time frame in which you have to eat the carbon. Whereas if it's a metal vessel, there's a way to heat it up and clean it out well, and that expels the noiser, the non-kosher element that had been absorbed into the vessel. In other words, what's relevant to our conversation, that even before they got to Midian, even before they got to Sichon and Oig, the Torah had already discussed the halachas of non-kosher product that had been absorbed into the walls of a vessel, and that they have to be kashered out. If that's true, now you understand the Ramban's question. Why were the people only told about kashering the vessels after the war against Midian? And not the very first time where they encountered the problem, where they laid their hands on vessels that needed to be kashered, which was So you get the Ramban's question over there. But when it comes to Tvilas Kalim, well, perhaps it wasn't yet taught. We have no evidence that they were aware of this mitzvah up until this point. Okay, maybe that's the answer. But that's not so clear. Why not? Look at what the Ramban discusses. Both topics. He discusses kashring vessels and he discusses immersing vessels. 
The Ramban had a responsibility, surely, then to distinguish between the fact that we already know the halachas of kashering vessels from before. And so, therefore, it's a good question why we're not reminded about them when it comes live at the time of the battles of Sichon and Oik. And he should have said, Tfilas Kenim, we've never been told before, so that's okay. We can accept that it was introduced for the first time at the Battle of Midian. And that would explain why his question was only directed to the laws of kashering vessels, not to the laws of immersing vessels. And likewise, in fact, even more so, in a movement between the shall come the, we, we already noted that it's the commentaries who ask these questions against the Ramban. Now their answers, when they want to explain why at the time of the battle of Sichon and Oik we were not yet told about immersing vessels. If you have time to do the homework, you can go look at all the various suggestions that they make and you'll see that there are many loose ends. But Shaila Klolis Yeshkan, there is a simple general question we have to address. Loma Loyomod Horamban Horamban Al Kushyozoi. Why does the Ramban not address what seems to be a pretty obvious question? Why are we only told about uh, immersing vessels for the first time with a war against Midian? So in order to understand that, we've got to understand a little bit more about how the concept or why the concept of Tefillah's Kingdom exists in the first place, how it works and, and where it exists. And this will come a little bit closer to home because it's actually something we practice on an annual basis, or at least one of the issues we're going to look at, and we don't necessarily blink when we do it. So, so we're going to look at two questions about immersing vessels. One, as I say, applies to us on a regular basis, annual basis, and one that applied historically. But they're both intriguing. So two leading halachic authorities both said that when prior to Pesach you sell your chomets to a non-Jewish person, you should not sell them your vessels that were used for chomets. In other words, that had absorbed chomets into the vessels. Why? Because if you do, then when you would buy those vessels back after Pesach, you would be buying vessels that had belonged to a non-Jewish person. You would now be required to immerse them in a mikveh before you could use them again. That's the Chassam Soifer and the Noida Biyuhuda. It's not the view of the Alter Rebbe, clearly. Because, Look at the format of how the Alter Rebbe sets out the document you use to sell chometz. Kasuv b'zealoshen, it's written as follows: Vechen keli mechomotzim sheyeshalem chometz bein. Any vessels that have visible chometz on them are included in the sale. Vahinu shagama keli mnikarim lenochri. That means they sold to a non-Jewish person. Vihafal pichen loymotzinu b'divrei rabbein azoken. Yet there is no evidence in any of the commentary, writing, or legal works of the Alter Rebbe that says you have to immerse your, your, new, your vessels when you reclaim them after Pesach back in a mikveh. And of course, we know this in practice. We don't do it. We don't tovel our vessels. Why not? Seems like a powerful question. It belonged to a non-Jewish person. The halacha is when you get a vessel from a non-Jewish person, you have to stick it in a mikveh. Why not your vessels over Pesach? So the Shara there's an answer from the Shara Koilul. The Kevin Shekosa Ben Azoken, 
you got to pay attention to what the Alter says. That the Alter says you're selling vessels that have visible chomets on them. And it's clear that if there are any vessels you don't want to go through the kashering process before Pesach, then you've got to clean them really well. And that you won't notice any visible chomets on them. So therefore it would emerge, says the Shara Koylel, that nobody sells their cooking ware. Because you clean them. And if you clean them, you don't have to sell them. And those are the only things that, that you'd have to put into a mikveh. In other words, the very vessels that you're worried about, that perhaps you have to put in a mikveh, are the very vessels you'd never sell. Who's going to stick away their dirty cutlery, lock it away for a week, and then come back after Pesach and reclaim it? So the Shara Koyal says it's practical, it's realistic. What needs to be sold is going to be clean. Oh, sorry, what needs to be sold is not going to be kitchenware that has to be toiled. Kitchen where you're going to clean doesn't have to be sold. I'm going to say move on, but the Rebbe is dissatisfied with that answer because when we talk about cleaning kalim in, in case they have visible chomets, that applies to anything that might be exposed to chomets. The Shara Koylel is arguing that anything that you clean well does not get sold. So what was the Alter Rebbe referring to when he speaks about selling vessels? If clean vessels don't have to be sold and any normal person is going to clean their vessels, what's the Alter Rebbe talking about? That you have to sell vessels to the, to the non-Jew. So you have to say, must be that the Altarebbe is creating a catch-all that let's say for whatever reason it is a person did not get to clean certain kalim, well then you have to be able to sell them so therefore the document has to include that clause. Which takes us right back to the beginning. Well if you sell your vessels to the non-Jewish person when you buy them back why don't you have to immerse them in a mikveh like the Nodib Yehud and the Chassam Sofer want you to. Therefore, we've got to conclude that even if it is possible that you should have kitchenware that has visible chomets on it, that is nichlonim b'mechir lenochri, gets sold to a non-Jewish person, yet the Alter Rebbe would not require you to immerse them in a mikvah when you buy them back, and our question is, why not? You're getting them from a non-Jewish person. Surely you have to immerse them. That's issue number one that we have to analyze. Issue number two, is related to history. One of the reasons we eat dairy products on Shavuos, specifically the first day, is because as we well know, the Jews ate dairy on the day they received the Torah. Why? Because the Jews were now at the Matan Torah introduced to the concept that you have to shecht an animal in a very specific way before you could eat it. Just like most other mitzvahs were told, told to them there at Matan Torah. So anything related to meat that they had, whether it was food that had already been killed or uh, vessels that had been used for meat, was now all non-kosher. Because before the giving of the Torah, they were not qualified to shecht. So even if they had followed the official way to shecht, it would have been non-kosher because they were not qualified to shecht. 
So that day of Shavuos, they cannot eat anything which is meat. And they can't shech new animals or kasha their vessels that day. Because as the Gemara Shabbos tells us, everybody agrees that the day the Torah was given was a Shabbos. You can't shech on a Shabbos. You can't kasha vessels on a Shabbos. Therefore, their only alternative was to eat dairy. And hence, we eat dairy on Shavuos to remember that. You could ask a really simple question about this. One second. How could they eat dairy product that was cooked by them? It'd be far-fetched to say, well, they only ate cold product, things like milk and butter. And if it's true that that's all they ate, then we on Shavuos would probably eat milk and butter, not all the other fancy cheesecakes and quiches and who knows what else we have. Now, just as much as they had to kasha their meat dishes, surely they had to kasha their milk dishes. Because surely they didn't have separate meat and milk dishes prior to Matan Torah. So either they cooked meat and dairy together, or at least they used the same dishes at different times for meat and dairy. Why don't they have to kasha those dishes? The truth is, that's not a good question. You have to remember, when they left Egypt, and they left with the knowledge that the purpose of leaving Egypt was to reach Matan Torah, when they would be told what it is to be Jewish. The Jews were not ignorant of mitzvahs. Remember, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, they kept Kola Kola. So they were familiar with mitzvahs. And they were surely familiar with the idea that Hashem is not going to want them to mix meat and dairy. So they must have had separate dairy dishes even before Matan Torah. And therefore those dishes were not treif and they could be used for them to have dairy meals on that day. The reality is that the, the design of certain vessels is only suitable to dairy dishes, not to meat dishes, so you can assume they had safe dairy dishes. No issue about having to kasha their dishes in order to have dairy meals on Shavuos. But there is a different issue. Something still doesn't make sense. You're right, they didn't have to kasha their vessels. Because they didn't factually contain any non-kosher absorbed material. But what happened at the time of the giving of the Torah? The Jews became Jews. Meaning to say, they now... They now were upgraded to the holiness of what it is to be Jewish. As we saw, the Yerushalmi says, Surely they had to toivel all the dishes, which prior to this belonged to them in the status of B'nai Noach, and now belong to them in the status of holy Jews. Prior to Matan Torah, they did not have the status and the holiness of being Jewish. So our question is back. We're not worried about cashering the vessels, but we are worried about toiveling the vessels 
two questions. Why don't we have the Tovel Kalim when we buy them back from a non-Jewish person at the end of Pesach? And why did the Jews at Matan Torah not need to Tovel their Kalim before they could eat their dairy meals? Now, this has all been a discussion about the Ramban, and the one who's going to clarify it for us is a contemporary Rashi. Commission is Borpi Omim Rabois. The Rebbe has told us many times, when you learn Rashi's commentary on the Torah, even though it's directed at Pshat, you could still learn in Yonim Mufloim, amazing insights, some of which are relevant to Halacha. Even though Rashi's focus is the simplest understanding. And of course, then you cannot paskin halachically from a Rashi, because Rashi's goal is to explain the simple understanding of the Torah, not to get into all of the details of what's relevant to practical halacha. Nevertheless, there are numerous places where heavy Rashi Yonim, where Rashi brings things not as his own opinion, but quoting uh, primary sources. Move on, which helps us to understand. So, what's Rashi doing when he quotes from the rabbis? He's quoting something that's not Pshat. Because it's rabbinic, midrashic, talmudic. In other words, it's drush. It's a deeper analysis of the Torah. Yet if Rashi quotes it, it must relate to the pshat understanding of the pasuk. And that's why sometimes in the course of doing just that, Rashi will bring in something of an alachic nature, even though his goal is because it relates to the pshat of the pasuk, but it teaches us something of halachic value, and that's relevant to us in our conversation, and will help us resolve all of our questions around Tfilas Lasar, Looking at Rashi's analysis of our parasha, you'll find the answers to all of our questions. Why was Tfilas Kalim not mentioned earlier? How come you don't have to immerse a vessel when you buy it back after Pesach? And why the Jews were able to use their old Kalim at the time of Matan Torah without immersing them? So, when Rashi does discuss the, the concept of immersing vessels before you use them, which he does, that they have to go into the kind of water that would purify a person from impurity in order for them to be impure, Kosta Rashi says as follows. If you look at this pasuk simply, the simplest understanding is we're discussing how you take a vessel that had been contaminated by a dead body and make it pure again. So Moshe told them, So Rashi tells us that there are two things happening over here. You have to have a method to kasha a vessel that has been contaminated by food that is not kosher. And there has to be a way to kasha or to purify a vessel that has been exposed to impurity like a dead body. But Rabbi Seinu Dorshomikan says, Rashi, here's the Rabbi Seinu Dorshom. Now we're veering a little bit away from the Pshat into the world of halachic discussion. What do the rabbis tell us? She'af isur. That when it comes to kasha a vessel that had been involved with something which was non-kosher, hit int part of that process is to immerse them in a mikveh. In other words, a movement me Pirish Rashi, it's clear that Rashi's perspective is Ashalashito Soy, according to his understanding, Inyant Filas Kalim Shayekh Le Isur. Why do you immerse Kalim ever in a mikvah? 
It is related to the concept of non-kosher. Lachshiron mino isur. Mino isur. To be able to make them kosher after they had been engaged with something which is not kosher. Now that's strange. Ach kosher. It should be difficult for us to understand this because haloy adinu, is it not true that the halacha states um, as we well know that brand new vessels from a non-Jewish source have to be immersed. Even though they have no trafe history in, embedded in them. As the Gemara says, if you have old vessels and then you put them through the Libun most intense kashering process, they're now considered like new and they still need to be immersed in a mikvah. Besides the Gemara, look at Rashi himself. Rashi Be'atzmai Pirish, Sima Posuk Anal. He discusses in our same Posuk, anything that hasn't been involved with a non kosher mixture through heat. How do you kasher it? Put it through water. Well, what is that? What's through water? Says Rashi, means, anything that is not typically used with heat, plates, uh, I don't know, ice cream bowls, whatever it is. So they didn't absorb anything which is non-kosher. Says Rashi, means, stick it in a mikveh and that's good enough. If that's true, if these vessels never absorbed something that is non-kosher, why does Rashi use an expression that the purpose of immersion in a mikveh is to cleanse them from having been in a state of iser? The answer to that will solve for our entire discussion. Yuvan, to understand that, let's pay close attention to a nuance in how Rashi addresses kashering and immersing kalim a little differently. When it comes to kashering vessels, Kosef Rashi, there Rashi says, the purpose of kashering vessels is to purify them from whatever made them forbidden for use. That's how he translates the word according to the simplest understanding to purify them from impurity. But when it comes to immersing vessels, he doesn't use the word to purify them. He uses the word Now, up until this point, we've used a very loose translation of to make it kosher. But actually, the word means to make something ready for use, to make something suitable for use. What's the difference between purifying and making something suitable? The fact that Rashi makes this nuanced difference of language. When he's referring to kashring, he says, to purify. As opposed to immersing, where he says, to prepare them, make them suitable. By doing that, Rashi, in those two words, illustrates to us the fundamental difference between the process of kashring and the process of immersing in a mikveh. And that will answer all of our questions. Geder tahara, the concept of purifying something, shayach rak yesh tuma isur. You only purify, purify something that wasn't pure, either because it had been contaminated by something that was impure, or because it's not kosher. That's when you need to purify. 
Velochen, therefore, Nikas Hagola, the process of cashing through boiling water, which extracts and expels whatever impurities were absorbed into the vessel, that is called Lataharam, you know, it's purifying something from its forbidden state. Where's the word? That means to prepare something. Like when we discuss certain activities that are there to prepare the way in order to be able to do a mitzvah. Or certain items that are heksha mitzvah. Prepare the way in order to do a mitzvah. You need a knife in order to have a bris. Rashi is telling us the purpose of tefillas kalim, putting a vessel in the mikvah, is so it should be ready to be used. Not corrected from inappropriate use, ready to be used. Kloimar, in other words. Bula Satvila. The purpose of immersing the, the, the vessel is not intended to remove something bad, objectionable that was in the keli. That was done, if needed, through the boiling process. Or it wasn't needed at all, because there was no impurity to start with. Because this vessel is about to be used by a Jewish person who is not allowed to and would never engage with impurities. How do we make this vessel ready for such a person? Stick it in a mikveh. In other words, we're kind of protecting, we're creating immunity from exposure to something which is impure. As long as the same vessel was in the, the presence of or under the ownership of a non-Jewish person, maybe he never used it for anything impure. Maybe he never used it for anything. But it's in his hands. He could tomorrow decide to use it for seafood. So therefore, when this dish moves from his storeroom into my kitchen, it's not that it's being moved from something that was used wrong and is now going to be used right. It's from a place where it was susceptible, it was likely, it was possible that it could be used for something impure into an environment where that is now impossible. In order for that to happen properly, that vessel's got to go into a mikveh because that creates that immunity, that property of a vessel which is now not shayach. It's not relevant to the world of impurity. In Dugma bin Yonena, we'll actually see something similar in uh, our context. Because we know that there was an instruction after the war with Midian for them to kill the Midianite women. Who did they have to kill, says the Pasuk? Any woman who had been with a man, that's who had to be killed. There, you read that and you think, oh, women who were actually with men. That's not what it means. And a Kapirish Rashi, Rashi tells us, Any woman who had reached physical maturity and therefore was suitable to a relationship, even if she had never had a relationship, that's who had to be killed. Same principle. A vessel that hasn't been used for impurity, but could have been used for impurity, has to be kashed, not kashed, prepared for Jewish use by being put into a mikveh. 
therefore, even if it's a brand new vessel, or a vessel was used for non-kosher product, but only cold, which means nothing was absorbed into the walls of the vessel, still have to be immersed in a mikveh. Even though we know for a fact that there is nothing untoward that has absorbed into that keli, because the very fact that they were owned by a non-Jewish person or produced by a non-Jewish person, made them suited to something which is impure, and we have to get rid of that before we're in a position to use that particular keli. Now, with that information, we can answer the three big questions of the Sikha. What are the three big questions? Number one, Aleph Lomo, why is it that Hikshar Ramban, Rakal Giule Nochim, Veloyat Filaskalim? Why is it that the Ramban was only perplexed by the fact that we were not told sooner about the law to Kasha Kalim, and he was quite comfortable with the fact that only at Milchemes Midian are we told about immersing Kalim into a mikveh? We can now also answer the question why you don't have to immerse your vessels after having bought them back or, or, or reverse the sale that you did to a non-Jew over Pesach. How is it that the Jews were able to use their dairy vessels straight after the Torah was given without having to immerse it? One answer to all three. The Ramban comments, and you can actually look at it in the commentary, you'll see the Ramban quotes Rashi, so he's bringing effectively Rashi. he quotes Rashi's language, speaking about the difference between vessels that were used in, with heat and without heat, and he examines in great depth an, an analysis what Rashi has said. If the Ramban is basing himself on Rashi, Rashi has already told us that sticking vessels into a mikveh is to prepare them for kosher use, not to rid them of trade fuse. So therefore the Ramban doesn't have to ask a question, why were we not told about immersing vessels before? Because he's already dealt with it when he told us about kashering. He's already told us that when they were battling against Sichon Oig, the circumstance of that particular war was they were even allowed to eat treif meat. So now think about it. It's logical. If they could eat treif meat, they were not yet required to kasha those vessels. Because if you can have the treif, you don't have to kasha the vessel. Then surely you don't have to immerse the vessel in a mikveh. Because why do you immerse vessels in a mikveh? Because they were shayach, they were susceptible, they were suitable to something which is forbidden to us. Well, in that context of the war against Sichon and Oig, none of that stuff was forbidden. Even the treif meat was permitted. So there is no susceptibility to being forbidden. Which is the only reason you immerse something in a mikveh in the first place. Because it could have been used for impurity. And now it's going to be reserved only for purity. Well, nothing could have been used for impurity in the war of Sichon and Oi. Because the whole concept of impurity or non-kosher was temporarily suspended. So the concept of taking them from susceptibility to impurity into the world of holiness doesn't exist. The Ramban did not have to address it. Likewise, when it comes to selling our vessels over Pesach, 
In spite of the fact that we're selling it all, the non the the, the product and the chometz kalim, they're all going to the goy. And you could really even give him the keys to the rooms where you keep your kitchen with. Let's be honest. The reality is, everybody knows, including the non-Jewish purchaser, that he's buying it with the intention to return everything to you when Pesach ends. It's a 100% legal sale, and it has a time lapse to it. Now, it is absolutely uncommon that the non-Jews actually could arrive at your house during Pesach and actually use your product and your kitchen with. This is such an outlier scenario that some of the later commentators say that the concept of selling chometz on Pesach is almost like a, a, a bit of a misleading sale. Because of the circumstances of chometz, we allow it. Because the practicalities of selling our chometz on Pesach is that it's 99.999% that the non-Jew is not going to touch any of that stuff. So why would it have to be immersed in a mikvah? The whole purpose of immersing is because the kalim had been in the jurisdiction of the non-Jewish person who could have used it for impurity and that's got to change when I take ownership. That doesn't happen over here because he couldn't have used it for impurity. And if for one strange in the 0.01% scenario that he does use those kalim, well then, I actually have to kasher them. Not just dip them in a mikvah. So in the normal situation, there's no need to dip them in a mikvah because they were never accessible to the non-Jewish person. And likewise, when we ask the question, how could they use their dairy dishes straight after receiving the Torah? Well, kafishin is borliel. We already identified earlier. Because of the knowledge that the Jewish people have passed down through the generations, they were already cautious about mixing dairy and meat even before the Torah was given. Vaim Cain, which tells us two things. Not only were none of the dishes actually practically t- more importantly, they were not able to become treif. They were not suitable to become treif because they were in Jewish hands, Jews who were observing the laws of kashas even before it was formalized. So there's no reason to have to, to, to kasha those dairy vessels. The meat vessels they had a kasha because the shkita was not a kosher shkita. Because of the same reason that we said before, the whole principle of Tvilas Kalim is because these are Kalim that had been susceptible to impurity and they're not susceptible to impurity anymore. That wasn't relevant in their case. Okay, what does that teach us in our lives? Probably more than anything else, that our job is to ensure that the world we engage with should not be susceptible to impurity. It should all be directed to the world of Kedusha to make a dir of a to bring Mashiach now.